You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning, my name is Dean, and for the next month, we're going to be looking at different aspects of living your best life in the new year, with the first week being the fact that your best life is a countercultural life. It might not make sense to the world, but it makes sense to you if you're in step with the Lord and where he is guiding you through the scriptures to build your life. It might be saying we're going to stay in Tallahassee forever and root here, or it might mean we're going to go somewhere around the world, whatever it might be, that you're living your life based on what God thinks and what God says instead of what the world thinks is wise and what the world says. Let's pray together, and then we'll jump into our first week of Your Best Life Is here into the new year. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity to have this topic uh, before our church family of what it means to seek your best life for us rather than the world's definition. I ask that you be people like Brad who are trying to live their life for Christ in this community with their families. Lord, for our church members, you continue to use them and build them up in Christ and allow them to let their light shine before others as they may see their good works and glorify you in heaven. We pray for our missionaries around the world. Lift up Redeemer Queens Park to you in London. Lord, and ask you to continue to use that church and be with Thomas and Elizabeth and all the people there. Lord, we ask that you find our church faithful, that you be with all the churches in Tallahassee today, you find all of us faithful proclaiming the gospel together, that you be with those in our church family who are sick. Lord, any needs in this church right now, we lift up to you. We thank you for Jesus and ask you to speak through me right now and keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. In the name of Christ, amen. Your best life is, what's the world's wisdom? Whatever makes you happy, right? That's your best life. At all costs, pursue what makes you happy. If it means you need to move here or add this or take this away or, or leave her or, or leave him, do whatever makes you happy is the world's wisdom about how to live your best life. And who doesn't want to live their best life, right? Let's be fair. Who doesn't want to be happy? I think being happy is actually a good thing. But we can't let American life define for us exactly what that is. I think it's wonderful to want to pursue happiness in your life. I won't frown on that for a moment. But as people who claim the name of Jesus and an allegiance to Christ under the authority of God's word, people who are filled by the Holy Spirit, it means that we can't let other voices decide for us how we're going to define happiness in our best life. See, I do believe that God wants us to live our best life, but to do it actually how he designs it rather than the world. John chapter 10, verse 10. It can be a common memory verse for some people. It's a great verse. I'm thankful for it. It says the thief, referring to Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Like, that's his mission. That's why I pray regularly here on Sunday for God to keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. But then Jesus gives a strong contrast. He might, Satan might do that. Here's why I've come. I've come so you may have life. Life. Who here wants to have life and have it in abundance? Not a tiny bit. I've come to bring you life in a massive amount. Like, what great news this is for us. In their recent book, God, or excuse me, Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme, sounds like an important topic, Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons document that 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. The highest goal. 
84%. That's the highest purpose of our existence. 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most, whatever that may be. And 91%, that's your last stat, I'm gonna give you 100 stats, I promise, 91% affirm this statement. To find yourself, which every movie today seems to be about that, right? Look within yourself. Like you are the one who is the answer to all of these things you're looking for. But ask many Christians that, especially in America, and, and you might find an agreement, a type of amen. We'll just sprinkle some Jesus and faith language on top of it to make it sound better and feel better and be a little more kosher. But in the, same in the same Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same Jesus, the same one speaking, who told us he wants us to have a life in abundance, he also said this, anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. That actually finding our best life is actually in losing ourselves. I mean, what opposite messaging is this? I mean, could it be that living your best life in God's eyes is actually living a countercultural life? Because it is. And it's so easy for me up here who lives a fairly easy life. To be able to stand up here and say, let's be countercultural and let's and I acknowledge that. That oftentimes in our suburban context that we have no clue of really what it looks like to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. But it doesn't mean we're exempt from it. it. doesn't mean we shouldn't search the scriptures and look at culture and analyze and see where we fit into all of this. See, this past week you've been bombarded by messaging, the new year, about you, you, you. New year, new me. Try this, add this, stop this, you can do it. And how quickly do we go from Jesus in the manger to it being about us real fast. And it's real quick. Jesus in the manger, everything about Jesus, and then boom, it's over. I went to a neighborhood Christmas burning bonfire last night. It's like an annual tradition in our neighborhood. And it kind of symbolically felt like toward the end of Christmas officially. It's like, there's a tree, it's burning, right? I guess, I guess we're done here. But how often, and I love Christmas, but how quickly do we go from Christmas to moving on to it being all about us again? See, oftentimes in Christian circles, I want to talk about how we answer this. The idea of a secular culture is seen as an opponent that we're supposed to fight. I hear a lot of culture war language in a lot of evangelical Christianity, and I, 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 that rubs me the wrong way a little bit, because culture is not an object to fight. They're actually people to, to love our society, but I, I think when we think about a secular culture, we need to see it as a sea in which we're immersed, Rather than a fight or a war that we're in, a sea, a big, huge pond even, that we're immersed, that the pool that we cannonball into, we aren't fighting it, but we are definitely swimming in it. And that big, huge sea or big, huge pool or big, huge body of water has influenced us more than we can possibly imagine. And again, what baits us, and I guess you could say hook, line, and sinker brings us in, is that it's easy again to sprinkle a little Jesus language on top of it, to make it feel and sound okay. 
And as a result, our faith sort of becomes something we hold on to at the last second or something big happens in our life that's catastrophic rather than actually what drives us every day in our lives. A few years ago, my family was on vacation. And we got to the hotel a little bit late and we were kind of unpacking and that's always the worst, like trying to unload the car, get by the car, all those sort of things. And they had a little indoor pool and the kids were like, can we please go to the pool? Can we please go to the pool? It's like 10 o'clock. I'm like, oh my gosh. They're like, can we please? They've been driving all day. I was like, fine, we'll go to the pool. So I, you know, put on my little bathing suit or whatever, and not little, that'd be scary, you're like, whoa, I uh, know, put on, put on my bathing suit and went down, some of you are like, I'm, that was the worst visual of my life, so, so, um, so I went, so the kids jumped in, and they're like, dad, come in the pool, so I jump in the pool, and I'm swimming, and everything's great, we're just kind of hanging out and talking, and then I lean up against the wall as they're swimming, because I can go like a minute, and I'm done, and I feel my pocket, and my iPhone is in my pocket. And I'm like, oh, it'll be fine. Maybe it'll be, I wouldn't end here that long. I get out, the thing is just gone. So it's like a crisis, of course. I gotta run to a, like a store in Boston and get a new phone in the emergency moment. Can't wait more than 10 seconds. But, but at that moment, my phone was gone. And I started thinking about that story because I act like it was like this traumatizing experience in the moment, but which really obviously wasn't that big of a deal. But here's the reality. If we're gonna survive swimming in this cultural stream, this cultural sea, this cultural ocean, we cannot just have our faith in our pocket. It's not gonna make it, it's not gonna work. It's gonna shut down and eventually go away altogether. Over this next month, we're working through some different texts of the Bible, I'm kinda introing it today, but if we're going to live our best life, our faith cannot be in our pocket. See, the language the Bible uses is that Christians are exiles. That's Old Testament language for the people of God who were literally exiled into Babylonian captivity, but now the word exiles is spiritual. It's used for Christians living on earth until Christ returns. Like we're living in a spiritual exile in this world, which is the modern day Babylon, this world. And we gotta realize the days of cultural Christianity are starting to fade, and it's time to rethink what normal looks like. And what normal is going to look like are Christian people living their lives with their faith out of their pocket, immersed fully in Jesus Christ in a world that is not their home. Because those who are nominal are gonna continue to fade away and be disconnected altogether. Church attendance is at an all-time low in America. You're seeing a generational fade where grandma and grandpa were really faithful, really faithful. Their boomer son and daughter, their, their daughter-in-law, son-in-law, like the, the next generation was faithful but not very committal, oftentimes. And now the kids that were raised by the boomer Christians are really nowhere to be found. And they're raising their own kids and they'll show up on Mother's Day because it makes Nana happy, that, that type of pressure, that kind of thing. Or every now and then because mom and dad ask them to. It might mean a lot to them. But the reality is that nominal expression of the faith, you're one generation away from it being gone altogether. Now Jesus promises he will build his church so our faith's not in jeopardy. Our faith will survive until Christ returns. Jesus made a promise, like, he's not in jeopardy, the gospel's not in jeopardy. But the reality is this idea of cultural Christianity is starting to fade away. 
And where we're at right now are people with their faith in their pocket as one last straw. And by that, we can't sit around and bemoan about it, but get to work and be urgent, pointing people away from their best life that they think they're living and actually point them to Christ. It's one of the things that is causing people to disconnect is that they think they can be fine on their own apart from faith. I'm a good person, that kind of idea. I'm happy. Because super generic and vague faith in a magic fairy tale, good luck charm God is not going to survive. So if our testimony includes how God has called us out of darkness and into light, how important is it that we're walking in the light? Because when Jesus saves us from our sins, he saves us to something, to life, to abundant life. And we must show the world that this exactly is what they're longing for, what they are craving, is not the life the world promises, but one with Christ. And it also comes understanding that it's simply not that Christianity is an alternate ethic to a secular age. Christianity is the world's enemy. It's the world's enemy. We shouldn't see the world as our enemy, but what's the very thing that secular culture gets up in arms about? They don't care about what Muslims believe about marriage. You never see anybody freak out about that. Evangelical Christians, they lose their ever-loving mind. We have to understand these things. Charles Taylor wrote this, that in recent centuries, and especially the last one, countless people have thrown off what has been presented to them as the demands of religion and have seen themselves as rediscovering the value of the ordinary human satisfactions that these demands forbade. They had the sense of coming back to a forgotten good, a treasure buried in everyday life. In other words, humanity flourishes by throwing off the constraints of religion and following the whims of their desires wherever those desires might lead. And here's how it comes at us. Here's the strategy. The first thing is the world's message. Conform to me. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. Our first belief in that, in the Garden of Eden, is what separated us from God. It was sin that separated us, but that belief, that lie, that I have to go around God for what I'm looking for rather than actually right to him. If I'm gonna live my best life, I gotta eat this fruit from this tree that God told me I couldn't because he's holding out on my happiness, apparently. Thankfully, as the world comes after us and says, conform to me, Jesus pursues us over and over again. His death, his resurrection, the spirit draws us and now we're told instead, counterculturally, to be conformed to him, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The next one is the flesh. Us, our hearts, our minds, which says satisfy me. Meet my desires right here, right now, in this moment, whatever it takes. And the devil, who's a real being, Jesus believed the devil to be a real being, not an allegorical figure, says, worship me. You might go, well, that's, I don't do that. That's like for like really extreme, like crazy people, like worship the devil. That's really, I'm, like, I'm not like going to Tom Brown Park and lighting a fire and painting my face and doing chants. Yeah, that's just kind of weird. Anytime we tell God, no, I don't want you, I want something else instead, we're functionally worshiping the devil. It's not for weird people. It's not for crazy folks. It's for anyone who believes the hype 
that there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. And I got to go around God for all the things I'm looking for. It's really kind of the triad, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's always going to be tension between fulfillment in our lives and devotion to God. This shouldn't really surprise us in a world distorted by sin that has broken our relationship with God. Let's go back to John, where I was earlier. It's easy to look at verse 10 about abundant life and neglect verses 7 through 9. Verse 7, Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Like, I am the one that brings the fold in. Like, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the direction of your life. I'm the one who cares for you. I'm the one who's responsible for you. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, or false teachers, false messiahs, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, not any other way, we enter through Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. Through his death, through his resurrection, he's the one who died for our sins. He will be saved. He'll be saved from God's just punishment over sin. And will come in and go out and find pasture. And then here's that verse. Remember, context is king when you read the Bible. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Conform to me, satisfy me, worship me. But I have come so they may have life and have it in abundance. Notice that Jesus says when you come to him as the gate, like that he is the point of life, that you find pasture. And that is tied in this text to abundant life. That abundant life comes from Christ and the pasture that he prepares for us. Picture a pasture for a moment. I'm really indoorsy, so I don't really go out in pastures very often, but if I did, I think the guy who invented air conditioning should be on Mount Rushmore. Personally, that's another conversation for another time. But picture a pasture. Let me think about it for a minute. What do we think of? It's usually very peaceful. It's very life-giving. It's oftentimes very alive. It's beautiful. You kind of feel like when you can walk out into the pasture, it just sort of allows you to go, ah. And people who own fields and properties still have problems. They're not exempt from difficulties, but can't you just sort of think about walking out onto your property, this big pasture, just going, all the world's out there, and in this moment, I can just be locked in here. Abundant life does not come from your bucket list being checked off. I've sat in a room with a lot of people who were dying, just because of the nature of what I do. Been in a lot of hospice rooms, a lot. I've been in rooms where actually people had their last breath and the straight line came across. A lot of times I've been in hospice rooms where people were coherent and could have conversations. Never had one person tell me, you know, I got six items left on my bucket list. This stinks. Never had anyone tell me that before. Being happy doesn't mean that You're in the moment all the time. That you're slaying the day, that you're being successful. 
I've never had someone tell me they wish they were more successful. Even though I don't think it's wrong to desire to be successful. I don't think it's wrong to want to have a bucket list. I think all those things are great. I've never had anyone tell me that before. I wish I'd have taken that. I wish I'd have done more. In those moments, you know, we're usually talking about what they want to talk about, because I just kind of come in and let them lead, because in that moment, I don't want to come in and you know, bombard them or make them feel even more uncomfortable than they already are. They want to talk about their faith. They want to talk about heaven. They want to talk about Jesus. So I usually ask them their story of how they came to faith and lead the conversation down the path of Christ, because Abundant life comes from him, and that is what he's trying to communicate there in John chapter 10. That your best life is actually with me. But again, Jesus tells us things, and the scriptures tell us things like we're going to be persecuted, you're going to have trials, you're going to have difficulties, not maybe that you are going to have these things. So keep in mind the pasture that, that Christ is welcoming us into is not exempt from, any, it's not exempt from hardships. But the great news is when we go out in the pasture, we don't go out there alone because Christ is with us. He's the gate. He's the shepherd. And we're told in John 10, his sheep can't come out of his hands. Why? Because he's died for them. He purchased them. He is their friend. He is their brother. Our fathers adopted us into his family. We are his bride. Let's not forget that we're still in the kind of the, we call it the middle act of the drama of God's story. Scripture describes it as groaning longing for creation to be restored, for Christ to return, for God to finally and fully repair this world that's so off, that's so broken, that it's not as it was designed to be because of sin. This broken world is gonna continue to disappoint. But it wasn't designed to disappoint. It was designed to be pasture with God. But because of sin, it's been broken. But thankfully, God in his grace and mercy is reconciling and redeeming a people to himself. And one day, we'll make all things new. Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, a missionary, making it clear that no believer really does get his or her best life now. She asked this question, does our faith rest in having our prayers answered? And I love getting my prayers answered. She's not saying that's wrong. Does it rest in having our prayers answered as we think they should be answered? Or does it rest on that mighty love that went down into death for us? We can't really tell where it rests, can we, until we're in real trouble. I wanna move to Galatians for the remaining time here to grasp this lure of happiness, this conform to me, satisfy me, worship me, and show you that in this world, this is not new. 21st century Christians are not the first people to encounter these type of temptations. Here's what Paul writes to people who much of the theme is that Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, which is amazing here in Galatia, but some of the Jewish Christians were telling them they still had to be circumcised. They would say, okay, yes, you're, you're part of us, but not fully part of the faith yet, not fully part of the body of Christ. You need to go through the ritual Jewish custom of circumcision, which is prescribed by God for Jews prior to Christ's coming. And now the sign of the covenant was Jesus himself and Christ in us, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. So these people were conforming now to these rules they were being told. So that might sound harmless on the surface, but what are they communicating? That the death of Christ wasn't enough. 
We've got to add some works onto our salvation. That Christ's death wasn't sufficient. We're not fully forgiven yet. We've got, we got to get circumcised first. And they went from believing the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to die for them and shed his blood for them and that he rose from the grave. And we want to be a part of this. We want to have eternal life. We want to have our sins forgiven. And all of a sudden, now they're in line to get circumcised. So they must have really believed this stuff. Because that was me. I'd be like, you know what? Buddhism sounds kind of nice right now, but that's just me. And he asked him, he says this. He goes, you were running well. Like, you were all in. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? You were going here to Christ, and now you've been... And they're thinking, well, yeah, we're, no, we're still with Jesus, but also we've got, we got to add this. This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. As in, you're not following God, you're following people. Popular opinions luring you in. It might sound harmless to you, but a little, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. This is a big, this is, this compromises the entire gospel story because we're saying the death of Christ was not enough. Later on, or earlier in chapter 2, he says, if righteousness comes by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. Verse 10, I myself am persuaded in the Lord, you will not accept any other view. There is not a coexist bumper sticker on our church. That you will not accept any other view. Why? Because Jesus said he's the way, the truth, the life, and we don't think he was lying. See, living the countercultural life is being clear in not accepting other views. I don't mean in political debate. I don't mean in little, you know, little kind of detailed theological conversations. I think it's this. No, about who Jesus is and the way back to God. Now, we accept people, but we do not accept anything other than the name of Jesus. And here's how this was coming at these people and how it continues to come at us today. Here's the strategy that these people were using in Galatians chapter 5 to get these new converts to circumcise themselves and in their eyes be legitimate. It comes at you in a couple different ways, three different ways. Let's say, yeah, here it is. The first one is pressure. They were feeling pressure to get circumcised. I'm not legitimate enough unless I do X. The next one is guilt and shame. Oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm still guilty. Maybe I'm still in my, in my sins. Maybe it's not complete. Maybe I'm not really forgiven. Maybe God doesn't fully love me yet because I haven't done this action. And then really the theme of it all is the third thing is twisting scripture. Twisting scripture. Because in the scriptures you see circumcision as a mandate for Jewish males. But now since Christ has come, circumcision is written on our hearts. What Christ has done inside of us is now what matters. So pressure, you can fill into any area of life. Pressure to conform. Guilt and shame to make you feel like you have to do it or you'll be maybe labeled as one of those kind of Christians. You'll be labeled as out of touch, maybe even bigoted, too churchy, whatever it could be, and then twisting scripture along the way to try to prove the point. 
We see how often that's used today with verses that are really important, like love your neighbor, and how that gets twisted and redefined. I mean, anything goes at any time, and you can't say anything about it. See, we as Christians must live in what's called the already not yet, already not yet tension of our present age, where we enjoy here living on God's earth, like we enjoy his creation, but we aren't of this earth. We are enjoying all the promises of God and having confidence in those things while knowing that the full realization of it will be when Jesus returns. Where we can face being marginalized as we find security in the gate into the pasture, anchored in Jesus Christ's triumphant resurrection and his impending return. So in the meantime, as we are trying to live our best life with Christ, there's two things we aren't if we're going to make it. This is the faith in the pocket that we want to avoid. And the way we do that, one, is by, being, by refusing to be embarrassed and refusing to be swayed. Refusing to be embarrassed over the scriptures and over the faith. Those of you who are students in this room, of any level, high school and middle school students, if you're in here, lock in with me. There's gonna be a temptation to be embarrassed over your faith. To be embarrassed. My just plea and charge to you is go with the one who rose from the grave. I told you on Christmas Eve, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. My senior year, I took a math class that was called math. I'm still recovering, that's not funny, I'm still recovering from that. But I'm gonna go with the guy who was dead and came back to life three days later, every single time. 20 years later, nobody cares how cool you were in high school. The people still standing in their faith that I know that I grew up with are people who still anchored themselves to the local church and were unashamed of the scriptures. Yes, they had temptations. Yes, they had moments. Yes, they had human struggles, all the normal things of life that Jesus came to die for. But they stayed anchored to a local church and they refused to be embarrassed over the Bible. And then not swayed. Remember, we're not fighting culture. We're thrown into the water of it. So if we're going to do that, we've got to have community. We've got to have our Bibles. Remember, when we first brought Joe Thigpen in to be our discipleship pastor, we're talking about strategy and just kind of philosophy, and he goes, man, none of it matters if people don't read their Bibles. It doesn't really matter. Like, that's where we grow. That's where we see God. That's where we understand who he is and what he's done for us. We must be people who pray who regularly pray and ask God not just to protect us, but to use us, to equip us, to strengthen us, to send us into this big, huge water of the society where we live. And then at the end of the chapter, the book, he says this. Those who want to make a good impression of in the flesh. Look at the motivation. It wasn't theological. It wasn't, well, you know, the Old Testament tells us we should be circumcised. We think you still should. Okay, we're in. That's not why they were doing it. Those who want to make a good impression, they want to be accepted, are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. It's that simple what was going on. 
but only to avoid being persecuted for the cause of Christ. They're embarrassed and they want to live an easy life as defined by the world. So it's going to be a whole lot easier if we just go along with it. If we just kind of go with the current rather than trying to go against it. We won't be persecuted for the cause of Christ. Hello, sign me up, they're saying. Not embarrassed and not swayed. So we believe as 2 Corinthians 5 says that he died so those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. A question we have to often ask is, do we want to be associated with the crowd or associated with Christ? That's not a false dichotomy. With the crowd or with Christ? Justin Early writes this, none of the biblical texts are afraid of telling you, look what God has done for you, now live differently. So often I tell people, he says, that your habits are not going to change God's love for you. You cranking it in the new year is not going to change God's love for you. Now, I hope you do crank it in the new year, whatever that looks like for you. Rather, God's love for you should change your habits in terms of what you value, what you're most loyal towards, who you seek in times of trouble, what you believe. Here's what I know about the crowd. The crowd doesn't promise green pastures and abundant life just promises little temporary feelings and temporary desire quenches. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me say this 422 times, here's 423. It's kind of like juicy fruit gum. In the yellow package, juicy fruit gum is the best three seconds of gum you've ever had in your entire life. And then what happens? Gone. I keep popping in my mouth like a baseball player. I go, wad. You know, that's why I, I keep doing that to get the flavor, get the taste. That's the world. Pop more in. But here's Jesus. Not offering us an easy life. And some of you know that more than I do. For what you've been through. But you know what he's offering us in all of this? Himself. So your best life is a countercultural life that believes that Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, as we kick off this series, I ask you to be with this series as we work through certain texts over the next few weeks. Lord, we ask you to use the scriptures. The Holy Spirit invades our hearts and helps us to see that the greatest blessing there is is you. That you really are the greatest blessing, the greatest reward that's actually found in Christ. I ask we'll all believe that. I'm sure there's some in this room who have had to learn to believe that based on different circumstances in their life and circumstances is an understatement. Trials, traumas, difficulties, suffering. Or that they had no other hope but to look to Christ. Lord, I said, that'll be true of all of us, that we will look to Jesus and actually really believe that the one who came for us, the one who loved us first is worthy of our love. So we as a church are thankful that you so love the world that you gave your only son. So whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, let that be the life that drives us to live our lives abundantly here on earth. For everyone here in this new year, I ask that you use them and you allow their lives to flourish and to reach the goals they have set for themselves. Lord, but I ask the motivation is you. 
and that those goals aren't met, that a faith crisis doesn't come into their lives, because you never promised us any of those things. You didn't promise us success. You promised us pasture, and you promised us you. So we will be with the one who came to give us life and give it more abundantly, and we're thankful for that truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.